Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tommy Hawk's Axe House. Tommy Hawk's is the biggest axe throwing venue in the Midwest. Veteran owned and operated, Tommy Hawk's is run by a former U.S. Army Ranger and his family. If you're looking for an awesome place to kick some axe with family and friends, then Tommy Hawk's is the place to be. Tommy Hawk's also makes customized axes and tomahawks for those that want a unique piece to add to their collection. I just received my customized modern cowboy tomahawk and I am beyond thrilled. Check out some photos of it on our Instagram feed and once you see it, you're going to want to get one for yourself. So whether you're chopping wood or hitting bullseyes, Tommy Hawk's has got the blade for you. Check them out at www.tommyhawks.net and also check out episode 116 of the Modern Cowboy Podcast where I interview the owner and hear all about their story. So hey, check them out at tommyhawks.net and tell them Dan at the Modern Cowboy Podcast sent you. Hey everyone, today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by thecowlot.com. The Cowlot is a retailer of hand-shaped cowboy hats and other Western products as well. And they're committed to customer service and dedicated to the cowboy way and how you wear your hat. Thecowlot.com is where cowboys and cowgirls shop to get their new lids. So head on over to thecowlot.com. Tell them Dan at the Modern Cowboy Podcast sent you. And hey, check out the episode 114 where um, I interviewed the owner, uh, Glenn Orms. And uh, hear their story behind the Cowlot. I think you'll find it very interesting. But uh, one thing you're going to really love is you're going to love the new lid you get because they take the utmost in care in making sure that you get the proper fit and the exact shape you want. So head on over to thecowlot.com, get a new lid, and tell them Dan sent you. Where are you cowboys and cowgirls at? Hey everybody, this is Dan Hillenbrand, and welcome to Modern Cowboy, the podcast for the cowboy lifestyles and businesses around the world. I'm glad you're here, so sit back in your saddle and prepare to be inspired, motivated, educated, and entertained as I interview a new guest each week that embodies the modern cowboy. Welcome to the Modern Cowboy Podcast. I, I'm really excited to have my guest on today, Ben Longwell, uh, all the way from New Zealand. Um, like I said before on the podcast, I always need a geography lesson. I, I know that's uh, somewhere, I believe, by Australia, but um, I'll let Ben explain where uh, 
where exactly he's located. But we're going to find out how a Colorado cowboy ended up in New Zealand. Uh, Ben's a uh, horse trainer, and I don't know if I'm using the exact, uh, you know, proper terminology for that because I know a lot of a lot of guys uh, train people, and I know I know that from personal experience, uh, my experience with horses growing up, and and how I was first introduced, uh, you know, to to horses and people I was around, how they treated horses, and I've learned a whole lot over the years. Uh, I. I am not a horse trainer or a skilled horseman by uh, any stretch of the imagination. But um, as I've gotten older and as I've dealt with a lot of things in my life, I completely look at horses so much different than I, than I did when I was really young. Uh, and one of the biggest things is because I uh, have chronic pain and I've got chronic problems. I, I look at the, the horses and by just to the fact that, you know, the last thing anybody wants is to have pain. And, and, uh, you know, I've, I've know from one of my first experiences when I was 10 years old, I was getting ready to go on a, a backpacking trip uh, with a group of boy scouts. And I wasn't in that troop, but I was just there with my uncle and my uncle had this horse penny. I'll never forget it. She was white and I was going to ride her on the trip. Something happened. I just remember he hit her in the face with a rope. And he hit her several times and it actually swelled her eye shut and we couldn't take her on the trip. So for me, and he had a big ranch up in Northern California uh, with, with his father-in-law. Uh, they had a lot of cattle, a lot of horses. He wasn't a horseman, obviously, but that was kind of like one of my first introductions to, you know, okay, well, you gotta, you gotta control this animal. Uh, anyway, I, I'm just saying all that because I know that, I know that uh, Ben uh, has got, uh, you know, Mad, mad skills when it comes to you know working with horses and i'm sure it's a, a learning experience every day but anyway i just say all that just to kind of preface this uh you know it's it's uh, something that uh you know i'm you know i mean again horses to me now they're like therapy for me when i get around a horse uh, i get more relaxed and more calm and just uh, i feel at peace so anyway uh, i may have went off on a tangent but uh ben welcome to the modern cowboy podcast well, thank you very much, Dan. It's uh, it's really a privilege to be here with you today. Yeah. Hey. So you know, tell me. I've, I've again. You know, I've I found out about you through social media, uh, and you know, you've you've uh, you're you know a, a, a horse trainer basically. But tell us tell us about how you got into that. How you ended up in New Zealand. Uh, just you know, go from there. It really uh, quite a quite a story I guess I grew up I grew up in Colorado western slope of Colorado my family has been there since the pioneer days uh, both sides of the family really and grew up working with horses and cattle uh, always had had uh, had those sorts of animals around and, and was always sort of looking for a way to get along with them I guess I sort of had similar experiences to what you just des- described you know where I saw people trying to make things happen or or, um, you know, trying to be forceful around, around them. And it just never set well with me. I never, um, thought that that was probably the best way to get around and do things with those sorts of animals. But, uh, you know, you get on and you do what you do and you learn and you grow and you, you, uh, try to get the job done because you've got a job to do, you know? So we, uh, we did that. I did that for, um, quite a few years. I did different day work for ranches in, in the area. My brother and I did that for quite a number of years. Um, after we got out of school and, and, uh, 
I started my first young horse when I was 16, and that was mostly by trial and error, mostly error, and <laughs> it was quite a learning process, but um, it's, it's, it's quite a long story, Dan, as far as, you know, how I find myself in the Southern Hemisphere right now. Um, the, the short version is, uh, in my early 20s, I had done an apprenticeship with a trainer in Grand Junction, Colorado, and uh, he was a quarter horse breeder as well as a horseman. And uh, I learned so much there. It just really turned the lights on for me. Uh, just really a pivotal time in my life. And I knew that there was something there for me at that time in my life. I wasn't a hundred percent sure if I wanted to keep being a, a working cowboy or, you know, kind of going to this horseman thing or, or, uh, or what really. And, right. uh, and that was really pivotal. And I started doing a bit more of that, you know, cult starting and, and starting to help people a little bit and really probably just mostly cult starting. I don't know if I was helping the people too much. I, I was pretty reserved, pretty shy, you know, and not really very articulate really when it came to expressing um, anything that I was thinking about with the horses to try to help people understand better. Right. But I went to, I went to China, actually. I went to um, visit my sister in China with, with one of my brothers and we, uh, we ended up meeting uh, my wife, Natalie. We met her when we were there in Hong Kong and she had, she had come up from New Zealand. She was there and we were just, we were both, we were actually on an international missions trip with a non-denominational organization. And, uh, we just crossed paths for a week and we ended up working together, uh, in that part of the world for, for one week. And, uh, as they say, the rest is history. So, so you, so you met your wife there. She wasn't your wife yet. You just met the person that became your wife. Correct. That's right. My brother and I were there and it was actually our second trip over there that year, 2007. And we just happened to cross paths with Natalie, uh, for one week. And yeah, that was, that was that we, we, uh, just got to know one another and became fast friends and spent the next three months corresponding long distance as I went back to Colorado and she came back to here to New Zealand. And we, uh, you know, in those days, it, there was, you know, video messaging was in its infancy and my parents' internet was, uh, you know, satellite and it was no good for video messaging. It was so frustrating, you know, so uh, Hotmail had a chat. This was before Facebook even had a chat option or a messenger option, you know, and so we broke in that Hotmail chat pretty good. We got that stuff working. Well, you could get on and... and I could tell whether she'd had a good day or a bad day, you know, just through typing, you know, just through that, those words, you know, and, right. and something about, you know, developing a long distance relationship like that and the commitment and the struggle and the, you know, the challenges that that faces that really sort of set, I think set our, our relationship on, on a pretty firm foundation. Long story short, um, for Christmas that year to meet my family and, and to see if she could hack the Colorado winter um, so Christmas and for a few months there with my folks. And then I came down here and I met her folks and we got married when we came down here in the spring of, uh, well, it was fall down here, but spring up there, um, right. May of 2008, we got married. So 
uh, it was sort of a whirlwind deal. And, and again, like another one of those real life-changing pivotal seasons. And uh, so we started out in Colorado. We were, we were starting youngsters for uh, um, another trainer in the area and just, just, you know, pleasure horses, ranch horses, just everything, you know, he was pretty well connected in my hometown there. And so he had just asked if I wanted to come on just to start, start the Colts. And then he'd put finishing touches on them. So we did that for almost a year before we moved up to Wyoming. We spent a couple of years on a big ranch up in Northern Wyoming near, near Shell or Grable on the uh, Western edge of the Bighorn mountains there. Yeah. 300,000 acre ranch that we, uh, we would, uh, we ran cattle. We they had a quarter horse breeding program. And then we also took on guests to experience and work with us and, and such. So that's really where I started to pick up a lot of people skills right. or I get the, the ability to communicate and help people uh, understand horses and cattle better and, and those sorts of things. So. Very cool. So uh, at, at that point, had you realized that you wanted to be a full-time, uh, you know, do clinics and stuff yet or were you doing clinics yet or were you just working we started i started at at the ranch in wyoming i started doing a few lessons and with the guests and stuff sometimes they would they would ask for a little more instruction or they'd want to schedule a a session or a lesson with one of us you know to to improve their horsemanship and, and their riding and those sorts of things and of course when we were working with the cows then it was all about um you know, giving them, you know, giving people instruction who had never done it before most of the time, right. uh, where to be, why you needed to, you know, stay back or go over here or move over there, you know, in order to influence the direction of the herd or to gather, gather different critters up, you know, in those right. days, it, you know, looking back, you know, I've learned exponentially, <laughs> you know, so much more since then. So, um, I guess that, you know, you, with practice, then you get better at the communication of it and what you're looking for and how to help people understand. But those were definitely, that was definitely the start. I had done a few demonstrations um, with the, the horseman that I worked with in Grand Junction. We were part of the Rocky Mountain Horse Expo that year and, and I had helped him do some demos, but I hadn't done any public speaking or anything like that at right. that time. So definitely a, a progression. I think at that time I, I was, um, you know, Natalie and I had talked about, getting our own place set up somewhere somehow and, and starting to do some horsework for people and moving into some clinics and stuff like that. It was, it was a dream. It was something that we talked about. Um, but we never dreamed. I mean, she had immigrated to the States, you know, and, and she had left her life here and, and she missed her family terribly, but you know, that was, that was what we had done and that was our plan, you know, so we had right. never dreamed that we didn't. Yeah. And so when did you, when did you make the move over to there and, and, and when did you start, you know, your, your company, uh, you know, what year was that? We came down in early 2011 and it was, uh, again, it hadn't been our plan, but it was sort of a change of circumstances and things just lined up. Um, just an incredible way. It really was a, a God thing. And he just sort of switched gears on us in midstream in late 2010. And, uh, pretty much a series of miracles brought us, brought us down here. And I had actually started a couple of Arabian horses for the president of the endurance racing club here in New Zealand. Uh-huh. When I had first been down to get 
2008. And at that time, he told us that um, I could make a living down here working with horses. And I didn't think much of it. I was sort of in one ear and out the other because we were going right. to live in the States and that was our plan. And so long story short, Natalie's dad put together some people who had contacts and he's a good networker. So he had some work lined up for me by the time we got down here in February of 2011. And we built a, we built a little training facility on a friend's place, you know, put some pens together, put up a round, round corral and, and we had work. We had three horses in to start. And, um, you know, we, we registered the company, True West Horsemanship. We got a Facebook page up and going. Um, Natalie's a trained graphic and web designer. So um, it's pretty handy to have a house. <laughs> yeah. um, away we went. I mean, we hit the ground running and we really haven't looked back. It's been absolutely um, full on ever yeah. since. Probably the biggest, one of the biggest opportunities that came early on was within a few months, we, we saw advertised in the leading equestrian magazine here that uh, they were going to have a national horse expo for the first time. And they were looking for present, presenters and clinicians to put their hands up and say, hey, well, I'd like to come do something. So, <clears throat> you know, if you'd asked me, I'd have been like, no, 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 thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, being the, uh, the uh, administrator that she is, she said, I think we need to look into this. So we, we put our hands up and we went down and met the, met the event organizer. And she loved us. And I mean, it was, you talk about chucking a baby in the deep end. It was chucking me right out there in the deep end. So we got accepted to do that. And we were part of a uh, horseman's uh it was called the three horsemen. It was a cult starting deal, but it wasn't a competition like road to the horse or anything. It was, it was more to be educational and just to see different approaches right. over the three and three days of, of cult starting. And, uh, and just for us to give a chance to demonstrate and, and talk about what we were doing. It was, it was tough. You know, it was, it was a big stretch for me. I right. had done a few clinics down here. We had started to do a few little clinics around, around our home base there, but it was, it was a big deal and, and it sort of put us on the national um, stage here down here in New Zealand and it, and it is a small country. So that's not the same thing as the national stage over there, but it was, it was a big deal. Right. You know, um, is it just thinking about now New Zealand's close to Australia, right? Or is connected. I mean, forgive my ignorance here, but how long of a flight? Is yeah, it that's, it's quite a long flight, so it's best if you get a direct flight from either San Francisco or Los Angeles, and it's usually about 12 to 13 hours direct to Auckland, New Zealand. Okay. So is New Zealand, uh, is it, well, is it connected to Australia? Is it part of Australia? Or am I, no? No, no it's two separate countries. They are both um, part of the Commonwealth, of course, used to be British provinces. Okay. Um, just like America was before we fixed that, you know, right. <laughs> I like to say it anyway. Um, I like to give these guys a hard time, but it, it's an interesting arrangement now because of course in these days, you know, the queen doesn't have a direct influence on this nation really, even though technically they're still part of the Commonwealth. We have a prime minister here and, and uh, parliament, our own parliament, you know, and stuff like that. So um, but no, it's a, it's a, it's a separate country, New Zealand. It's a, probably a three or four hour flight from Australia across the Tasman, across okay. the Tasman. And, 
it is one of the more remote places in the world. You don't um, find yourself here on your way to anywhere else except Antarctica. No kidding. Yeah, and it's some of the most beautiful country, too. Very beautiful. Yeah, it's very diverse. It's, uh, it's got mountains. You've got mountains up to 12, over 12,000 feet that are two or three hours from sea level. You know, it's, it's just got some incredible diversity. You've got uh, subtropical uh, in, environment in the far north all the way to Invercargill being the southernmost city in the world, I think. Um, it's at sea level, so you don't get a lot of snow there, but it is cold. <laughs> you know, you can just about see Antarctica from the tip down there. And, and it's uh, so lengthwise, it covers a lot of latitudes, you know, and, and, and because it's a long stretched out country between the two islands. What's the uh, population or approximate population there in New Zealand? About five million, four and a half to five million. And um, typically uh, a good one to 1.5 million of those Kiwis are overseas. They're, they're a traveling people. Um, they like to go overseas to experience the world because you have to, <laughs> you, right. you know, out of here, you got to go somewhere overseas. So they, they, you'll, you'll meet Kiwis all over the world. They're a real traveling kind of a people. And so this year, um, of course, with everything that's been going on, there's been masses of them coming back. And so, you know, there's still probably half a million overseas somewhere, but um, yeah, there's about four and a half to 5 million people. So the way I put it is um, land size is about the same as Colorado or Wyoming and population is about the same as Colorado, about, about four and a half, five million. And then, and what's the horse population like over there? I mean, it must be pretty good. It, it is actually, um, you know, I don't know numbers exactly, but there is such a huge range of different disciplines and breeds. It is so varied. It's amazing. You know, when I was growing up and the work that I did through the Rocky Mountain region and even still do, you know, you, you deal a lot with quarter horses, paint horses, grade horses, draft crosses, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the disciplines are fairly, you know, quite, quite Western, you know, and obviously I hadn't had any experience with anything but Western disciplines and ranch riding and stuff before I came here. Down here, I've had the privilege to work with, I, you'd almost have to pick a breed I haven't worked with, you know, really? um, and, a, and disciplines too. You've got everything from, you know, the three-day eventing, cross-country, dressage, um, show jumping, lots of Western disciplines as well, reining, Western pleasure, um, a lot of pleasure riders and stock horse riders and different, different ones. And like I said, just about every breed under the sun. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, this podcast is called the modern cowboy and, uh, you know, you are an American cowboy over there. Uh, what's the cowboy culture like is, is, uh, you know, I mean, if I look at like your style, uh, you know, to me, I, when, cause you know, we all, we all have our style and we all love, uh, you know, we, we all lo just love the whole, the whole thing of, you know, what our dress and what our hats are and everything else. So when I, when I look at you, Ben, I, I mean, for, I, I just kind of see like, you remind me of maybe like Nevada Buckaroo a little bit, kind of your style. Um, you know, that's kind of just what I see. Do they have a style over there or, you know, uh, cause I like some of your hats I see you wear, you got short brim hats which are super cool, you know, and a lot of, um, you know, ribbon bands and stuff. And anyway, 
do they have like a, a, a typical New Zealand cowboy or? Well, you could call it that. They don't call it that, but you could call it that. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, so they've got, um, what they call swannies and, and it's a, it's a, it'd be similar to our duster. Like it's not quite waterproof, but it's real warm. It's a good layer. And all the farmers have a swanny, you know, it's a swan dry is the name of the company. And, and out, the outback trading companies, um, slickers and stuff are, are popular down here too. Okay. But you've got farmers, you've got farmers and you've got stations. The stations are like big ranches and you do have stock work done on horseback um, there. Some, particularly more here in the South Island than in the North Island and, and the, and the country's a bit bigger down here. Right. But if I was to say, you know, like a, a, a way of dress or a style, I'd have to say they, they got their mud boots or they call them gum boots, like, uh, you know, like an irrigation boot. Right. And it's really commonly farmers because it does get quite wet and muddy in a lot of parts of the country a lot. And then a lot of these guys will wear shorts like 350 days of the year, like, it'll be freezing outside and they'll be in their swanee, you know, and it's like rain blowing sideways. And it's, it's not freezing like in Colorado freezing, but because a lot of the country's humid and you get wet and it's humid and it's that bone chilling cold, you know? Right. And they're out there, they're out there in their stubbies and that's what they call them. their stubbies. It's like the, you know, in the eighties, the real short shorts that were in fashion. Yep. That's what yep. they, of them, you know, it's like, you guys are crazy, <laughs> but there's not really any cowboy culture. There's not really a, a tradition as such, like we know it over there. Okay. But, but the, but the horses and different, like you, like you alluded to earlier, uh, there's just a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different, uh, uh, you know, types of horse people over there, equine people, I guess. There is. Yeah. Quite a wide variety. And, and I think, you know, qu yeah, quite a large percentage of the population, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of horses here. Yeah, you know, I I um, I, I was thinking about this the, the other day. I'm so particular on 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 horses. I don't know why, but I I love a certain look. I love a certain size. I, I love a certain demeanor with a horse. Uh, you know, and um, and I've got to, you know, I've got to connect with them. It's like it's a relationship, you know, for me. And again, I'm not around horses as, as much as I'd like to be right now at this point in my life, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, to spending more time, but um, you know, are, are there, is there a certain horse or a certain breed you like to work with more than the other? Or do you look at it because of your, uh, you know, your profession, what you do, do you just look at everyone as a different type of challenge in a, in a, in a new, uh, you know, uh, a way to learn a new skill set working with, you know, something that you're maybe not used to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me, it is, any opportunity to work with another horse is an opportunity to learn an opportunity to figure them out as an individual. So for me, it's not so much breed specific, obviously, you know, for my own horses, I want something with a good mind and good confirmation, mm -hmm. uh, like a good quarter horse. Right. Uh, I, I really have started to like and get some experience with the Spanish horses, the, um, PREs, they're called Pura Raza Española. So like Andalusians, Lusitanos, um, those types. Uh, and of course, that goes back to my passion around the, the Baquero bridle horse and, and um, those sorts of traditions. I'm really passionate about that. 
and and you know we've been bringing that sort of um, education and, and that tradition here to New Zealand. We've been involved with that um, even at at the National Horse Expo and stuff like that. We always we always teach about the hackamore and, and the bridle horses and stuff. But I tell you what, the the horse that you know, if I was to say, well, I, I really like this horse, it would it would be that mindset and the try that that horse has. You know, um, I've learned a lot from challenging horses. I've learned so much from the difficult ones. Right. And sometimes those are the ones that'll turn around and, and give you the most or have the most available when it really matters. Right. Uh, there is also something about the uncomplicated ones that just want to do whatever you want them to do. And there's just a try there. And it's not that they're always necessarily easy. Um, I've I, one of the ones I own is a perfect example. He's, he's uh, a quarter horse and I started him for a lady quite a number of years ago before I ended up owning him. And I loved him at the time, you know, he, he's just got try and he, he loves to work and he loves to go. He's real forward it doesn't mean it's easy. Like it's riding, it's like riding a rocket, you know, some of the time you better, you better know where to go with that because if you just tried to bottle it up, boy, you just drive him crazy, you know? Right. And he's a lot of fun, but he is challenging, but he's got that try, you know, he, he just wants to. Right. Yeah. Um, how many horses do you own personally anyway? That's a good question. We've, we've got, Three and a half, I like to say, because we've got a kid's pony. Um, I swore I'd never get a pony, Dan, you know, <laughs> never had a pony growing up. I grew up riding, riding horses and, and, uh, but you know, it's been so good. We've got four kids and they're, they're young, you know, and they're just learning and gaining confidence with this little pony, you know? So we've only had her for a couple of months, but if I've got three horses, I've got a, a Kaimanawa who is, um, he's one of the wild horses. He's from the wild horses here in New Zealand. Um, they run wild up in the North Island. And of course, just like the Mustangs, they're, you know, feral horses that have escaped from captivity over the last 150 years. Right. They don't have the, um, the length of time, like the Mustangs been running wild for, you know, 500 years, you know, right. But, but it is a similar type in some ways. And so what happened there is I was invited to be part of a national training competition with uh, a wild stallion. So we were each drawn a stallion straight out of the wild, like 36 hours right to my doorstep. And uh, we were, we were part of a competition to see what we could do with those. So anyway, long story short, he's been all over the country with me teaching, helping me teach clinics and stuff. He's gelded now, um, but I've got him still, and I've got this Palomino quarter horse I just mentioned, and he's 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 my main project right now. He's just about ready to go into the two reins in the bridle horse progression of the of the old Bucketto tradition, and then I just we just imported an American paint horse stallion, three and a half year old from my hometown in Colorado. We just brought him down and he got here in January of this year. He's a real special horse genetically. He's, he's what's called double homozygous, which, you know, I won't go into too many details there, but he's, he's very, very unique genetic genetically. And um, the breeder is somebody, a lady I've known most all my life there in my hometown. And um, so we were privileged to be able to get him and get him down here, which was 
a very expensive proposition. So we're hoping to um, get some more breedings through this spring and start to start to get his book full for next breeding season. So he can start to pay off his loan. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, like the draft horses and stuff. And I see, a, I see a lot of people, you know, are, are, are riding draft horses and, and, and you know, I, I don't know if it's, if that's been around for a while, but it seems to me like it's something new I've seen in the past few years where people are, you know, training these draft horses or maybe they're cross uh, bred, breed of a draft horse uh, for riding horses. What's your take on that? Yeah. Well, you know, over there you run into, some of the ranchers who will throw a bit of draft into their crosses, you know, just for the bone or the, the strength, you know, and those sorts of things. Um, and then of course, over there, you'll, you'll have a lot of the bucking horses that are draft crosses. Okay. So I thought it was interesting because down here, they call it a Clyde cross and, and the Clyde cross down here, which is a Clydesdale crossed often with a thoroughbred actually um, down here is very, very common. And when I first started running into them, man, they can be sensitive because a Clydesdale is often quite a sensitive horse for being a draft. And then you cross it with a thoroughbred and you can just have a real nut job on your hands. And I, I, the more I ran into this Clyde cross down here, the more I thought, do these guys know this is what we breed bucking horses with, you know, <laughs> what's the deal here, you know, but um, they can be really nice horses too, you know, but they are, they're very common. And, and then the pure drafts are actually, it's not uncommon. I've got quite a number of students and clients who um, I've started a lot of pure Clydesdales and, and uh, Percheron crosses and um, particularly the Clydesdales. I've got, I've got quite a number of people who ride straight up Clydesdales. Huh. Yeah. So once you got, uh, you know, your true West horsemanship company going, um, you, started your clinics tell us how kind of how that progressed because when i look at your what your work and your content and everything i mean it's it's you know just top level stuff and 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 it's just very impressive so and and i can i can tell too you've got a better half such as myself uh, that helped you with a, a lot of stuff uh because without them we'd probably be lost on a lot of things but uh just tell us a little bit about that how how, how that developed and also maybe, um, you know, who some of your influences were in terms of, uh, you know, uh, previous, you know, sure. horse clinic. That was a word I was looking for earlier, horse clinic. Uh, I think that's a proper term too, but. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you said horse, horse trainer. And, and I, you know, for me, training is an interesting word because I, I like to talk about communication. And if we're communicating and the horse understands then a lot of the training is something that can take place over quite a bit of time. And, and, and really there's a difference between repetition and, and communication. And you can make a horse do something through repetition without that great of communication and they'll get it and they'll do it and you'll go do whatever you want to do. And it might not really, it'll might be in spite of the horse. So it's interesting. I like the term horseman rather than horse trainer. But it's not something that I tip all myself because I think that's a term that has, you know, packs quite a bit of punch. And, and it's something that maybe I'd hope to be someday, you know. Um, anyway, that's kind of an aside. So 
the progression of true West horsemanship has been and, and continues to be just an ongoing uh, work. It is a lot of work. And, and you know that with some of your enterprises and how busy you are, you know, you get up and you hustle and you, you, you make stuff happen and you sweat and you cry and you get up and you do it again. Yeah. And you know, the harder you work, the luckier you might get, yeah. you know, we've, we've, we've hustled. And for a lot of years there in the early, early years, we were renting facilities. We had facilities that sold out from under us. We had people go back on their contracts. Yeah. We ended up temporary facilities in one spot and living in a rented facility, you know, rented home in another spot. Yeah. Tell you, Dan, I could tell you some crazy stories and, you know, you know, God was teaching us a lot through those times and, and he was just faithful, you know, just always incredibly faithful. We always had work. We just had to find somewhere to do it sometimes, you know, and anyway, the business side of things, we, we've done quite a number of different things and we've, we've sort of tried to develop multiple streams of income where, where we've got a multiple, you know, four pronged deal or three pronged deal going on. So a couple of things we did is we started to develop a network with makers. Whoops. Are you still there? Yeah. Hang on one second. Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. We just got started- a phone. I don't know why that came through, but. So I started to develop network with makers and craftsmen and dealers in the States to start to import some high quality Western gear and particularly Vaquero style stuff with the ranch ropes and good hackamores and stuff like that. Cause there was nothing down here that was any quality. And, and I wanted to provide that for people and it fit with the education of what we were doing. Gotcha. So we did for, probably about three to four years we imported gear like that. And that was part of what we did at the national horse expos. We would have a stand and sell, sell the gear as well. We sold it at our clinics and stuff and we had it on our website and, and just interacted with, with lots of different guys we worked with. Um, And then little by little, some of our students and some of the other people we got associated with down here, they were making gear. They started to make gear. One of my students went over and studied with Martin Black and some of those guys on rawhide braiding and, different things. And, and it's just started to take off. And so more and more you can get, you can get good stuff actually made here in New Zealand, which yeah. is, I just think it's awesome. You know, it's just, just really cool. Um, another thing we did was I brought a design, a unique rope halter design from one of the old timers I worked with in the States and uh, started having them made here. So I actually employed my father-in-law who used to be a yachtsman. He, he was a sailor um, and so he's good with the ropes, good with the knots. And I employed him to tie my rope halters. Um, very, very unique design. If you haven't seen those, um, they're not like any other rope halter you've ever seen. And very, very handy. And we sold those for probably seven or eight years, just up until just John and sold them at clinics and sold them at, sold them at clinics and sold them at the expos and stuff. And, um, that was just part of what we did. And again, it fit with the education. One thing that we've sort of made a stand on with what we're doing is to not have merchandise or product that does not benefit the horse or the person Uh, regarding horsemanship. In other words, as you know, you've got all kinds of merchandise out there, ball caps and t-shirts and coffee mugs and, you know, 
right. with the branding, right? With the logo, right. with the saying. Or, and so for me, and I've been approached many times by marketers and, and, you know, clients and even my family is just like, you know, you need merchandise because, you know, it, it, it's another income stream and it, you know, it helps get the word out there and people see it and they talk on their friends and they see that, you know, and it's like, for me personally, if it doesn't have a direct result or can't help people directly, like a good piece of gear, like our halters or the gear that we were importing, that fit with what we were doing to me, a t-shirt. Yeah. That, that anybody with their horsemanship. And so I've just line there and I do not sell any paraphernalia. <laughs> I just, that's just me personally, you know? And, and so that, clear from that the other thing that we've done a couple other things um and again this has just been over um well it'll be 10 years in february that we've been down here uh and so it's just been a long process we've had four kids in the process we were pastoring a church for the first six years that we were down here it was it was crazy times yeah but um we in 2014 um we took an idea that a client had had to do what we now call an escorted ranch tour, which is to take a group of Kiwis back to the States to experience life in the West, to learn about the culture and the tradition and to spend a week working on a working cattle ranch. Yep. And it is awesome. You know, it is just so cool to um, be able to take these Kiwis, you know, almost all of whom own horses themselves, many of whom, you know, work on their own farms or have stock experience, but all of them are passionate about the West and they, they grew up watching the Westerns and they, yep. you know, they love the idea of it. They love the romanticism of it, but they want to know what it's really like, you know? Right. And it'd be like these tours that you go, you know, to Zimbabwe and you want to hire a local guide to show you around and tell you what the real deal is. And, you know, what is that plant? Is it poisonous? You know, and, and right. what's it like? And, and so it's the same thing over there. I'm, I'm able to be that native guide, you know, to take them to the Rocky Mountain region and, and we take groups over there. Um, so for the last few years, we went from one trip or one group a year, which helped uh, initially helped pay our way over to see my family and spend a bit of time over there to three full on tours um, really? groups over there. And so we've been doing that the last few years and, and spending two or three months over there while it's winter down here and it's raining and cold and muddy. We're up there in the summertime. And, uh, and so that's been a real cool thing. We weren't able to do it this year. Obviously we had to postpone all of that and, uh, and ended up staying here through the winter uh, this year. The other, the other thing that we've done in the last two, almost two years now, and we're really, really excited about is developing our online video library. And it's something that we always kind of wanted to do. And I remember when the first, the idea first hit me, probably 2012, 2013, I started thinking about videos. And I think that's when I started my YouTube channel, which even still is, is nothing massive. You know, I, I haven't got a, got that really going very well, but, but that's when I started thinking about producing videos, you know, and, and I don't think I had a smartphone up until about 2013, maybe, you know, to even right. try to produce. And it's just been so cool to be able to start to put out full length instructional videos to begin to help people all over the world, right. um, advance their advance their skills, stay safer, set things up better for success. And we're just, 
it's it's still small it's still you know we're still growing it um i warwick schiller is a friend of mine i don't know if you know know who warwick is but he's a he's a really he's a world-renowned horseman and he's originally from australia anyway long story short he's got he's got a video library of like 600 700 videos you know and he's been doing it for six or eight years you know and uh and so we're nowhere near that yet but um but uh, we're excited about it and uh it's just, it is, it's a different income stream and it's, you know, sort of ticking along there in the background. But for me, it's just awesome to be able to give people a resource when I, cause it multiplies me, you know, it multiplies my right. time. I had some good apprentices. I've had a couple of really good young, young people come along and, and um, spend some time with me, a significant amount of time with me. And they're both um, now out, out on their own doing this for themselves uh, but other than that, this is the only way I can multiply my time and be more effective than face-to-face one-on-one working with one horse or a group of horses and one person at a time, you know, is to, is to get these videos out there. So we're real excited about that. Right. Now, in, in terms of like influences, um, you mentioned the one guy there, um, but uh, who, who are some of your influences and, 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 and your style of training, if you can just kind of, you know, briefly describe a little bit uh, how you go about it. And one thing too, uh, that, that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious about, uh, you know, is, is it ever, is it ever good to, you know, ha, you know, when you're starting a horse or training a horse or, uh, is it, is it ever good in your opinion to like have a horse buck when you're on it? I mean, is, you know, it just seems to me, you know, if, I don't know, I'll, I'll leave the question at that. I mean, sure. So influences, um, well, it started at the beginning, you know, of course, my dad and my grandpa started me with horses and, and you know, gave me the, the basics of, of what that was. But, but like you said, you know, in those, in those days and with that instruction, it probably wasn't always the best. And it was, it's sort of what it does, I think, and it's very, very common in, in, in the English disciplines as well. And, and, and I think it's just human nature is we go into it like it's going to be a battle, you know, like we've got right. to prove. We've got to make this horse, you know, do what we want him to do, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have to be a battle. It doesn't have to be a fight. Matter of fact, horses have no fight with us. They have no quarrel with humanity, you know? Um, so anyway, I, I'll go in a little bit more into that philosophy, you know, to answer your question in a minute, but my influences, my single biggest influence would be the horse itself. In other words, spending time with many, many, many different horses in many different situations and learning how to take a minute and listen and slow down and figure out why they were doing what they were doing. Right. What made them, what was their, um, what was their experience maybe that made them do what they were doing or not doing, but more importantly, how could I set it up in that moment for them to think what it was I wanted him to think because if they, where the mind of the horse goes, the horse goes, there's nothing so light and responsive and willing as having a horse think what you want it to. And then you just let it do what it's thinking, right. you know, because it's what you want to do as well, you know, and it becomes, it becomes effortless. It becomes, you know, you hear the terms, you know, light or sensitive or unity or harmony, or, you, you know, those words are thrown around a lot, but there's nothing like it when you find it, you know, there's nothing like it anyway. Um, 
I, I learned a lot from different guys that I rode with and worked with all of whom, you know, in the early years, nobody would know who they are. They're, 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 they're not big names or anything, but there's a lot of good horsemen out there, as you know, um, that, that don't get in the limelight or anything, but uh, probably the, uh, another pivotal time in, in, in my experience was when we were in Wyoming working at that ranch, I had the opportunity to ride with Richard Caldwell, who was, uh, he's since passed on. He was a great bridle horseman in the vaquero tradition. He was a buckaroo from out, out in uh, Nevada, California area. And uh, he came, he came to Billings, Montana and did a clinic there. And I, I got to ride with him there. And it was, it was pivotal because I was, I had been passionate or started to get really interested in the hackamore and, and the vaquero tradition and stuff. And uh, he just, you know, he was so incredibly knowledgeable. It just really turned the lights on for me in a lot of ways. Um, after that, of course, it wasn't too long and we had moved down here, which of course does not lend itself to, you know, spending time with a lot of uh, good, good, you know, American style horsemen anyway. And, uh, and so it was a number of years. And for me, it's, I don't, I don't watch a lot of YouTube. I don't have a lot of spare time. Right. I never, I never had a lot of YouTube or gone hunting a lot of answers on YouTube because I had the horses, you know, I had horses all the time that were teaching me things, but I did find, you know, and I always have been a reader. So I always like to read a lot. So I, I, I'm constantly reading about horses and, 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 and the guys that are, have, you know, gone before us or done are doing or have done more than what I'm doing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for knowledge. I'm always, I'm always learning, even when I wasn't going to clinics or anything for a period of time there. Um, and then probably in the last four or five years, we started to get a number of us down here that uh, would host international clinicians. And we got Martin Black down here, uh, Dave Weaver, who's, if you don't know, is a, is a, is a buckaroo, who's just an exceptional big loop roper, just the best I've ever seen. Um, we got Buck Branneman's come down here a lot. I've not ridden with Buck before, but, uh, Jeff Sanders also comes. He's, he's, uh, old California style. His family traces back in California for six generations. And he's, he is, uh, very, very knowledgeable. So anyway, I've ridden with these guys, um, a number of times and, you know, met up with Martin in the States a couple of times at the Buckaroo gathering in, in Salt Lake and different things. And, and these guys would be my influences. I, I read a lot of their stuff and, and, and um, they're passionate about what I'm passionate about when it comes to the, the bridle horse and, and the Buckaroo and Buckero traditions, but also helping people, you know. And, and the reality is, is that th that tradition and the horsemanship that goes into it, the understanding of the way we ride with our seat. Uh, and, and really, it traces right back to the classical equitation of old Spain um, is applicable to any discipline. It's right. applicable to any, it's applicable to any pursuit that we want to do with our horses. So, um, it's very much what I teach, uh, in all of my clinics and what, whatever we're doing, because it, it has to do with communication. It has to do with refinement, but it also has to do with the way a horse thinks and it fits a horse, you know? Right. So sort of going into the philosophy of things, I guess my approach, as you can already tell, is really, centered on the horse and centered in the way that they think and that the way they look at life and to really set things up for success. Really Ray Hunt used to say, set them up and let them find it. And right. if you can get that 
engaged in what you're wanting to build and what you're wanting to do and the direction you want to head and you get their mind engaged and get their curiosity going that builds confidence and that builds this uh, connection where uh, we're not having to make them do stuff. We can go do stuff together, you know, and it, it is a process. It can take more time at, at times and other times it takes a lot less time. And, and it's a lot safer because the horse feels safer. And so if we can set it up that, you know, they feel because all horses need safety and comfort, they're looking for peace. You know, that's what horses like. Uh, and a lot of times in their interactions with humans, there isn't very much comfort and they don't necessarily feel safe because they're lacking the leadership or the, the dynamic of being in a herd. Mm -hmm. And we don't provide the answers that they're looking for because we're too busy trying to just do whatever it is we want to do. And when they're not doing what we want them to, we think that they're being obstinate or they're being stubborn or that they, uh, disrespect us. How dare they, you know? And in reality, horses are just trying to get along. You know, they're just trying to do the best they know how to do with whatever they know and whatever they've experienced. And sometimes those experiences haven't set them up very good to do what we'd like them to do, but they really are just a reflection of their experience and then their perspective on that situation and what they feel like needs to be done for their own safety. And, uh, and a lot of times it's funny, they'll even compromise their own safety for us, you know, in what we're demanding of them. Right. And, and that's where it's, you know, like a mule or a donkey is not nearly so prone to compromise their own safety. And uh, that's why people call them stubborn. They're, well, they're not stubborn. They just don't, they're just going to call your bluff. They're just like, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going with you, you know? And uh, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Tom Dorrance used to say, uh, uh, you, you need to treat a mule like you ought to treat a horse. And I just find that so funny, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the way I try to treat them is, is uh, leave, leave that dignity intact, engage their mind, help them be okay on the inside. If they're okay, you know, on the inside, they're going to try, you know, and their body and their feet, you'll get those things where you need them to be, to do what you want to do a whole lot easier too over the course of time, if it, if necessary, than just by trying to make something happen. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and back to my, my, my one question too, uh, you know, cause I, I, I was, I watched a video of you the other day. I think, I think it was the first time you saddled a horse, you know, and you saddled and it was on a, you had him on a lead rope and, you know, and he went around the round pen a little bit and bucked a little bit. Uh, do you, do you like to get any buck out of them before you ever get on them or, you know, what's, what's your, uh, your thought on yeah. that? My preference is to get the buck out of them before I get on them. Um, I always tell people I'm not a bronc rider, never claim to be. Um, and for my clients, certainly I don't want that horse getting any experience bucking people off if I can possibly help it. Right. Okay. Oh, the reality is, is that, I might be able to ride something, but I have to get these horses when I'm starting and I start a lot of youngsters and I work with problem solving and stuff. I got to try to get these horses ready to be ridden by, by anybody almost if I can, you know, and that's a tall order. That's, that is not easy at all, but um, no, Dan, 
most young horses are going to buck a little bit with the Western saddle when you first put it on them. I, I like to prepare them a little bit. I'll take a little bit of time with a rope or even a surcingle or something around them just so they get used to the squeeze. And uh, I might put an old pair of chinks or something up there, you know, just so they get used to some noise and motion on both sides of them and those sorts of things. And that's good. But but typically, if I, unless I had the time to do that for if they're pretty sensitive, if I, I'd have to do that for three or four days or a week or something. And then they still might buck with the saddle because it's the combination of all that and more, you know. Right. And the reality, put it to people, is any horse can buck. Yeah. Some of them are good at it and some of them aren't. But we don't want the ones that are good at it to think that that's something we want them doing in, in this case, right? If they need to try it, I just assume that they give that a try and work at it and figure out that it's going to be ineffective so that maybe they'll scratch that off their list of options. So if they buck a little bit with the saddle the first day or two, I'm not too worried about it. If they carry on with that and they haven't scratched off that list of options, now I need to start to dig a little deeper and say, hey, that's that's not what we're looking for. I need to make that that wrong thing a little more difficult and make the right thing a little more easy. Gotcha. And so I get on, I don't get on a horse. Um, and I guess it, it's, it, it is experience, but there's certain things I'm looking for. There's a certain level of response and acceptance that I'm looking for in what we're doing on the ground before I'm going to get on a horse. Because like I said, I don't like getting bucked off. I'm not that great of a bronc rider and I don't want them to become broncs anyway. So I'm going to, I'm going to set them up for success if I can there. So for some horses, that's two, three, four days I'm on them first ride, uh, for some of them, you know, I've got two warm bloods. I don't know if you're familiar with warm bloods. They're, they're a unique breed, um, from Europe and very, very commonly used here in the show jumping and, and, uh, different different English events and I've got two of them here with me here that have just been bucking you know a bit more than with the saddle you know they haven't bucked with me yet and I've got probably six or eight rides on them but only at the walk and just barely eased into the trot here here recently you know and uh and they still like they'll go to grab themselves when you first saddle them up I'm just like you know no we've talked about this <laughs> that's an or, you know, but, um, so for them, you know, I didn't, I think one of them, the, the, the real tricky, tricky one, I didn't step on him for two weeks, you know, right. and, and that, that's just me. You know, I, I, I take the time it takes and, um, and my clients know that I have a reputation in New Zealand now for, um, I'm not going to rush a horse. Right. I'm not going to force a horse. Um, I'm going to set him up for success and I'm gonna try to set the person up for success and, and, um, get them here with me to work together with me a few times and then ride that horse a few times before they take it home, you know? So it's just, it's that sort of progression that I really, really want to try to set up for success. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to, uh, you know, do work on work on my horsemanship skills here a lot more in the upcoming future. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, cause I haven't ridden that much in the past, really five years, actually, um, just off and yep. on a little, you know, and, uh, uh, it's just, like I said, you know, it's just, it's such a relaxing thing, you know, to do and, yeah. and get older too. And, in in your, your objectives change, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not looking to, to go nine Oh anymore. Um, 
and uh, I, I'm, I'm even looking at, cause I love team roping, you know, but I'm even looking at, uh, you know, like getting into maybe some ranch roping and stuff, some stuff that's maybe not as fast, but uh, the skill level still got to be there. And uh, anyway, I just, yeah, I find it fascinating. Um, you know, we can go on talking forever. I know we can, but uh, let's, uh, let me ask you a couple other questions. Uh, I noticed you got a, a wide variety of hats. I'm huge into, into fashion, Western fashion, all fashions really, but man, I mean, I just love uh, cowboy styles and lifestyles and stuff. And like I said earlier, I, I think I was right when I, when I said, Hey, you, you just, you got that look of the, you know, Nevada buckaroo uh, with, you know, Ben spin on it. Um, so do you have a, a favorite hat brand or do you have a maker or. Yeah. So I guess um, I've, I've had, I've had Stetsons, a couple different Stetsons for a long time. Um, one's an old vintage one that I had reworked by, Mackie hats up in Shell, Wyoming, there where we lived um, at the Bighorns. And he's, he's a great hat maker. Um, I, I really want to get him to make me a hat and that's been on my bucket list for quite some time, but I've got, I've got a couple of Stetsons and then an old Resistal that, that I found when we were living in Wyoming. I just love the, the vintage look of that narrower brim sometimes, but um, so I've got, I've got those felt hats and then um, I just like this palm leaf that I'm wearing now. And I love the Atwood palm leaf and it just has such great durability. Uh, and, you know, it rains a lot here in New Zealand, even this, in the summertime at times, you know, and they just don't break down like some of your straw hats. So I actually got, uh, got one of uh, my newest, one of those from Glenn there at the cow lot. So oh, you um, did? He, uh, he hooked me up there when we were there last year and, um, so yeah, I, I switched between the palm leaf and, and some of those felts, but Stetson and Resistol is what I've got, what I've got right now, but I, I'd like to get Mackie to make me a hat. Yeah, nice. Well, we'll have to make sure he listens to this podcast episode. <clears throat> it may stimulate, yep. want to throw <laughs> on your, um, how about boots? You got a favorite uh, boot brand or maker? Yeah, I've, as, as you can imagine, I've, had a lot of different pairs of boots. Um, but I tell you what, I've not had any better luck than with the double H boots made okay. made in the, um, they just have some incredible durability. I'd love to get some Olathe's or Anderson bean, you know, I'd love to get some custom boots, but I just can't, can't swing it, you know? So, um, as far as, yeah, your, your factory boots, you can't beat the double H. Yeah. Now do you have a wide foot by chance? Or no? Yeah, a little bit wide. Yeah. And because those double H's, they run wide like that. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, Western movies? You got a favorite Western? You know, I was thinking about that question because I know you always ask it. And um, a lot of guys say the Cowboys and, and, and I love that movie. But, you know, if there is another one that um, that I've always loved and I've probably I have, I've, I've watched more than the Cowboys, it would be The Magnificent Seven. Really? The original one with Yul Brenner and everybody? Yep. No kidding. Yep. I love that story. Yeah. Very cool. Um, hey, you know, the other thing, too, that you mentioned, you know, you you do the trips uh, with you bring the New Zealanders over here. Now, you, you're you you're referring to them as Kiwis. Now, explain that to you real quick, because I, I that kind of got past me a little bit. I've heard the term before, but but uh, go ahead and explain that. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's I'll tell you a funny story. When uh, my brother and I met Natalie 
in Hong Kong. <laughs> Everybody on the group sort of could see within about three or four days that there was something going on between Natalie and I. Like we were just talking all the time and we sat next to each other on the buses and the planes and the trains, you know, and, and uh, I think some of them sort of knew what was going on before I did, you know. Right. Anyway, he had to go home and I'd gone over to the ladies apartment where they were staying because she said Natalie had said she'd left some kiwi fruit there for for me that um, you know she wasn't going to use and, and my brother John and I could have it so I go over there and I knock on the door and this Australian lady opens the door and she was traveling with us and I said oh um, I'm here for the kiwi well see in America we say kiwi and we mean the kiwi fruit right, right. but down here down here they say kiwi fruit if they mean the fruit and a kiwi is is the bird like the flightless bird kiwi or the people are called kiwis okay <laughs> just because that's the association with the bird and it's their national bird and and whatever you know oh man that aussie lady got a kick out of that because she knew i had the hots for natalie and she said ben the kiwi's gone home <laughs> I said, no, no, I mean the kiwi fruit. <laughs> well, that's too funny. So that's that's where that term come from, though, comes from, though. They refer to them, the people, as the kiwi. That's right. Okay. Well, and what I was getting at was, you know, you bring in uh, them over here for these, you know, uh, Western experiences. Uh, and, and again, it just it goes to, you know, my point of why I even started the podcast and, and my fascination with, you know, the cowboy life and in the West and everything else um, is that it's, it's alive and well everywhere, you know, and people, people are passionate about it. And, you know, that's just an example of, uh, of it, you know, with people, you know, wanting to come over here and you're doing it and that, and that's growing. It's unfortunate you couldn't do it this year, but uh, you get it fired back up again. And uh, that's very exciting. So whose ranch do you take them to when you, when you do come over here, by the way? We go to a friend's place in uh, near Bozeman, Montana. So we take them up there and we've been doing that for six years now. Okay. And you, you provide all the horses there and everything and they're, they're set up with uh, the, all the hospitality side of things and the horses and stuff. And um, it's a working cattle ranch. We also help neighboring places there, you know, and there's just always lots of work to do cattle work on horseback and, do a bit of branding and, you know, just whatever needs to be done. And it's, it's just part of the overall really educational experience, but a ton of fun, you know, it's just an epic, epic trip for, for these guys. And, and I enjoy it too, because, well, you know, without getting into politics and everything, you, you just can't believe how it is to be an American in this part of the world right now. And uh, even over the last four or five, six years, you know, the perception of Americans um, in different parts of the world is not what it used to be. And, uh, and so it's, it is cool to be able to take some, some Kiwis over there and show them the America that I know, you know, get, a, get them away from what they're seeing on the news and out of Hollywood and, right. and, and show them the rural, genuine, hospitable, authentic, you know, generous people and culture that, that I know is America, you know, 
Um, and, that was, and so that, that's really, that really are here. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's very cool. Now, now on those trips, are, are those, do you do those just, uh, you know, for, for New Zealanders or are, are people allowed to go on those that live here in the States? Do you, do you have a program for that too? Or. It's, it's interesting, Dan, because we have been approached by a number of people from Australia, the UK, and America as well um, to, to join on, on that. And one of the benefits of our tours, of course, is not just the working ranch and knowing kind of what you're getting into there, because, of course, you know, you can end up at a lot of different places and they might have good scenery, but real average horses or, you know. Right. It might just be a dude ranch going for a trail ride and you're not doing any cattle work and, and that's fine. But if these people want an authentic, you know, working experience, then it can right. be a shot. You know what you're looking for. If, if a person was just to try to find it. And then the other thing too, is that we take two or three days and do some shopping and take them through, through Bozeman and different places. And, and um, in different parts that we've done it, we always, we always take them to the best, you know, ranch stores and, and tax stores and stuff at the best restaurants, you know, the barbecue and the steakhouses, you know, and stuff. And so it's like, you know, all your homework's done for you. You don't have to, you know, hit and miss and say, well, that was average or, Oh, well, we wasted our time there. You know, it's, there's no time wasted. Like we're full on 10 days and it's, you know, we never, never stop, you know? And so, there is, there is a demand there. I never thought about there being a, a, a market there, even in the States for people to, to do that. We have had inquiries about that. We've had Australians join us and we had somebody from the UK um, interested in that this year, but, um, but I don't know. I don't know what that might look like in the future. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to it. I'm not, I'm not racist. Anybody's welcome. <laughs> Well, hey, if if uh, you, you get back going here this this next time, and you, you need the you know modern cowboy advisor on the tour, just give me a, give me a holler. I'll I'll shoot up there. Now, what part of Colorado are you are you from anyway? I'm from the northwest part of the state. Uh, you know you know where Steamboat Springs is. Yeah, I mean, I kind of. How close is that to Hayden? Do you do you know? Where yeah. Oh, Hayden, Hayden is right in between Steamboat Springs and Craig, and I'm from just out of Craig. Okay. So do you know the Mongers by chance? Do you know Kyle? You know, I know the name. I do know the name, and I saw I saw your post on that the other day. Yeah, I, I had him on the podcast before. We, we met, you know, like you and I met, too. Uh, but they've been up there because you said you guys have been in Colorado for since the pioneer days, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they they've yeah. been up. There. He's like fifth generation rancher there in Colorado. So, cool. Small world though, and then you know. So, and then how far is the cow lot from you guys then? Glenn's place. Yeah, so he's over in Denver, so on the other side of the Rockies, about about five hours. He is. He is. That's right. He is in Denver again. I'm I'm showing my geographical ignorance, but uh, <laughs> I probably knew it a lot better when I was in sixth grade anyway yeah there you go well hey so uh people want to follow you uh i mean I'm, i'll list it all in the show notes but just let's give a shout out to your handles on uh you know all your social media platforms sure sure thing 
Um, so yeah, we're on Facebook, True West Horsemanship, and uh, Instagram, same thing tr- with underscores, True West Horsemanship with underscores in between. Um, TikTok as well, and then YouTube. We've got quite a lot of content on YouTube, and then our website is truewesthorsemanship.com. Yeah, cool. You know, hey, I, I just realized because when you sent me uh, your information, I realized you had a, you know you were on TikTok. I, I got on TikTok uh, almost almost by accident, but then you've been on there quite a bit, and you got it, you got great great content on there uh, as well. So um, I didn't even know you were on there because I'm not on there that much, but but sure. it's a very very cool platform. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really like it. So anyway, I followed you last night once I, once I realized you were on there, but, um, <laughs> well, Hey Ben, Hey man, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. And what time is it over there right now? Well, that's a good question. It is seven twenty-one on Tuesday morning. That's right. So it's December 1st there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. But hey, man. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. When uh, when you get stateside one of these times, you know, uh, love love to meet you in person. You never know. I may make it over to New Zealand. I mean, there you go. Uh, uh, my wife and I we're planning on. I've i I've met so many people just doing this podcast in, in other parts of the world. And once they get this Corona thing over, whatever, we're planning on, we're planning on making some uh, some trips. So might just have to make it over there to New Zealand as well. You should. You should. I can show you around a bit. I think you'd like it. Yeah, I, I bet I would. Well, hey, man, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Um, and enjoy the rest of your day. And then uh, we'll talk soon. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's a, a real privilege. I appreciate it. You have a good day. You bet. Cowboys and cowgirls at. Friday afternoon, I hitch up the trailer. Saddle up old rock and ice down a cooler. I drive that old back road until it ends at the rope and We got them rusted out pickups and fancy rigs. $20,000 horses, then there's my own stick. Although we're all the same. Many we ride in to the roping pen. Most of life's problems Yeah, we're gonna solve it Down at the roping pen Yeah, we don't do it for the money You were always broke Just ask Clint what he paid a rope He's lost a dozen wives Half the fingers on his hands To the rope and pen And it takes a little skill 
and a little love You can talk smack, you can back it up Oh, but we're all friends No matter who wins Down at the roping pit Tell a few more lies Drink another beer And hypothesize Most of life's problems By God we're gonna solve 